Three, <laughs> two, one. Chiefs at Raiders. It's one of the NFL's top rivalries, and it's especially fun when the game is played at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum, as it will be on Sunday for the last time. The Raiders are set to move to Las Vegas next season. Star columnist Vahe Gregorian joins me, Blair Kirkhoff, on Sportsbeat KC, sponsored by Big O Tires, to wax nostalgic about the matchup. Listen, you can find preview material in previous podcasts. Today, Vahe and I are going to talk about the rivalry and the site. It's a lucky Friday the 13th episode. Hey, Vahe. Hi, Blair. So we're going to Oakland. Uh, as we've gone for the last few years, the, the games haven't always been good. There've been a couple of good ones, right? Chiefs Raiders. That the like Raiders, two of the last three, I think, have been really good, right? Is yeah, that, that, that yeah. certainly that night game uh, where the Raiders won in the final play, uh, a bitter loss for the Chiefs, and the games in Kansas City are never very competitive. That's just the Chiefs have the upper hand in the series since Andy Reid's been here. But we talk about and joke about you know going to Oakland and sitting in that dump of a stadium. The uh, what used to be the Oco.com or what, all the sponsor names that it's had. I love that in the final year, it's back to the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. We do enjoy going there, don't we? We do, but you're on a bit of high alert, you know, from the moment you're leaving the hotel to, to as you weave your way through the, the crowd. And you'll see people like that look like they're from, you know, what was that movie, Thunderdome or, you know, and you can't quite tell you know, what's real, what's not in these costumes. I remember seeing a guy behind security one time with like this bazooka. I guess it was a toy bazooka. Uh, but I remember thinking, it, 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 how does security check that? Right. I, I mean, I, I just some fearsome fearsome cats you'll see there. A lot of people in chains, you know, yeah. I, depending on, I don't know, they wear them different ways and use them in different methods, but there's a lot of chains uh, at, the, at, the, at the game. Yeah, and, and look, it does add to the color, right? And, and some of it's probably, uh, to some degree, it's not mythological, but it's probably a little overstated in some ways. But we were joking about, I think we were joking about this, the idea of say a simulated story with somebody wearing red you know, taking them through the day in in oakland sunday and I, I don't know that they'd have a a good or bad experience it's a coin toss i certainly have known chiefs fans to be there and seen some sitting among raiders but they're sure. not probably sitting in the black hole itself correct correct um and it, it it just may come to pass that one of ours sam mcdowell helps cover the chiefs for us will venture into the black hole on sunday and well, I, well I think we just committed him to it. That's right. <laughs> so, no turning back now, Sam. And we hope he returns to Kansas City on, on, on Monday after the game. So if, if that happens, uh, please pay attention to that story because it'll be Sam will do a great job with that. He 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 will. He would. And it, but but you're you're talking about the broader picture, Blair. There and and it is a game. It is a stadium we look forward to watching. The event in right it's it's an old school feeling and, and for the two of us we you know we're a little older so our, our memories of, of watching the nfl go back to that you know a lot of those west coast games even though we were both on the east coast seeing typically the raiders or i mean that, that that's the one that those are the games i saw the most on the west coast afternoon sure. games and often of course the chiefs i mean I, we were conscious of that even from afar no doubt about it I, uh, yesterday when we talked to steve spagnolo the, the defensive coordinator that, that was his memory growing up in the east uh, he couldn't kind of pin down specific games but he remembers when it was dark where he was 
the sun was out in Oakland. You know, yeah. we were watching, and I re- I had that same feeling when growing up in North Carolina and watching West Coast either games in San Diego or Oakland, and it was pitch black outside where I was, but the sun was shining in California. <laughs> what a groovy place to be. <laughs> no, it did make it feel like that, right? Like, that's why, why aren't we over there? Right. <laughs> that, right. How do we get there? It's, yes. It's so far away. Um, but but in that, in that time, little did we know as young football fans that, and certainly didn't appreciate, but the Chiefs-Raiders was the rivalry in the AFL, especially in the, the Super Bowl era, you know, so the Chiefs are in Super Bowl one, the Raiders are in Super Bowl two, and the Chiefs Super Bowl four. So those were the two teams that were the kingpins, along with the Jets, right? But those were the kingpin teams of the old AFL. They kind of ushered the AFL uh, transition in, into the into the NFL. And so a lot of the, when we talk about Raider Week, I remember moving to Kansas City 30 years ago and people talk about Raider Week and I didn't understand really what all that was about. Marty Schottenheimer played it up big. Um, But there is something, even when the teams aren't good at the same time, which they haven't been for a long time, there's still kind of a kind of a special feeling about this game there is and you do wonder when you just change the name to las vegas next year how much of that will be lost we'll we'll see that then but there's there's something just built in about it that you know i'm a, i'm really a newcomer just seventh year here you're semi newcomer in, in only your 31st year here <laughs> right i mean but but you understand you can feel that it's ingrained um and you love you do love it i mean it really is an attraction of the sport um and I, I I don't think you can mess up hyping it up if you're a coach. I mean, you, you roll with it, right? As we've heard this week from Chiefs coaches who um, who may not have grown up in the Chiefs Raiders rivalry, and none of them have really. None of them are from are longtime Chiefs. But Eric Bieniemy spoke to it. I loved what Eric Bieniemy said this week about not just Chiefs Raiders, but just the whole AFC West. And let's hear from Eric Bieniemy right now. I don't think it'll be different because it, they will always be the Raiders. But I will say this: it'll be different because it'll be in a different location because they're outside of California. And Silver and Black brings a, a type of swag to, to the state of California. And I know when they were down in LA, it bought a type of swag in the in the LA area. And I know Oakland have had that that swag for years, just the the history and success that they had with the number of players uh, over the course of the time that they've been there. But yes, just being a fan of football, I'm a little disappointed that they're leaving. But I do understand this, that the the rivalry still will continue, whether they're in Las Vegas, South Dakota, it does not matter. You know, this is the old school AFC West. You knuckle up and you play ball. Did you like the Raiders when you were a kid growing up out there? Is that a team that you like to follow? I will say this. Being in the AFC West and growing up, I wouldn't say. I'm not going to say what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I was a Cliff Branch fan. Who wasn't a Ken Stabler fan? You know, I mean, Marcus Allen. I grew up watching Marcus Allen play. So I've always been a Raider fan until I got drafted in the league and I played with the San Diego Chargers, and then you learn to dislike <laughs> the Raiders. So what you're going to say is you didn't like the Chiefs, right? <laughs> I will say this. <laughs> I, I had a great deal of fun playing in the AFC West, 
And it's good to be in this, this, this division because there's a lot of history between all of these teams, and that's what makes it fun. So that was Eric Bieniemy, the Chiefs offensive coordinator. That was pretty cool when he, when he said that on Thursday. He, he was, I thought, quite animated today on this topic in particular. A few different um, aspects of AFC West, Chiefs, his time in San Diego, the dirt, yeah, um, playing on dirt, things like that. So we, let's transition to dirt. Um, the, um, so we, we have the dirt on Oakland, Kansas City. Uh, <laughs> literally, they are going to play on the infield because the Oakland A season is not over. So for the first time in – what did Dustin Colquitt tell you yesterday? It was the first, it'd be the first time since 2005? I think 2005 is what he said. That he's played – that he will have played on dirt. Um, and we know this week that the Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker went across the parking lot to Kauffman Stadium to practice kicking on the infield there. Which What direction did he – was he kicking toward the foul, the um, foul pole? I, I thought I understood him to say between first base and the foul pole, and that they were practic- They did everything from onside kicks to to kickoffs, yeah. to field goals, to just snaps on there. Um, and, and but look, this is a fairly significant amount of space. I guess it's basically thirty-five to thirty-five. Yes, so it's, right. So that's do my math. That's thirty yards of the field, right? So almost a third of the field is in dirt. Yeah, yeah, and and if. If the A's don't make the postseason, um, I, I suppose and maybe if they do, somebody mentioned earlier uh, this week that the A's aren't even home in October, or the, uh, the the Raiders aren't home in October, so this very well will be the final NFL game ever played in a multi-purpose stadium, one that sh- where a baseball and football team share the stadium. So, boy, that uh, boy, I hadn't thought of it that particular way. Yeah, the, the very last because nobody else in the NFL does it yeah. or in baseball yeah. they share a stadium. Yeah. And so this will, this could be the this probably is the last game ever in a setting like this. And man, you and I absolutely grew up watching Cardinals, Pirates and Steelers, uh, uh, Eagles and Phillies, Phillies yeah. um, Mets and Jets, Giants and Yankees, all Falcons and and uh, and, and Braves share stadiums. Yeah. That's, that's how it was done. It, it is, and it's funny. Uh, by the way, we were talking the other day about. Remembering a particular United's uh, Namath game, and I, I had it as I think forty nine forty four, and I, I looked it up. It was forty four thirty seven. But but the thing that in our minds eyes defined the game was all these passes being thrown from the middle of the dirt. Right. It's just it's just so rare now and about to become extinct. And and I can remember I think I mentioned this to you this week. I remember the 1979 World Series between the Pirates and the Orioles, Game Seven, in Baltimore, with uh, the Pirates winning. But that game had stripes all over the field. The football field stripes were down on the baseball field for the most important baseball game of the year. They couldn't get the lime off the field. So, uh, so. We, so the A's will probably, you know, we'll, we'll see some, they'll be playing with stripes on their field for the rest yeah. of the regular season. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a odd thing to get used to also though, still blared because we see it so rarely now. Right. So I, I we keep thinking about how it's going to affect this game. And I guess the truth is you can't really know. It's typical. Both teams are playing on it. I assume the Raiders have a semi minuscule advantage just in terms of understanding the sort of quirks of it a little better, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Does it play into the, the game itself? Well, I thought the Heat would play into the uh, Jaguars' favor last week in Jacksonville. Um, the Chiefs seem to be the you know the, the, the stronger team in the yeah. fourth quarter. Well, in every quarter. Yeah, yeah. Last week, so we'll have to see. 
All right, Vahe, thanks for stopping by. Great conversation. And when we come back, we're going to hear from our college friends, uh, Alex Schiffer, Kellis Robinette, and Jesse Newell, big weekend in college football that actually starts tonight with KU playing at Boston College. Say big on the biggest brand tires. Where else? Your participating Big O Tires. Now through September 22nd, get up to $70 off select sets of Michelin and BF Goodrich brand tires. Plus, get up to an additional $120 in mail-in rebates on qualifying purchases using your Big O Tires credit card. Only at Big O Tires, the team you trust. Not valid with other offers. Disposal fees extra. Up to 10% shop fee based on non-discounted retail price. Not to exceed $35 per permitted. For the store nearest you, go to BigOtires.com. Hey, it's Blair. Hey, we have a special subscription offer for Sportsbeat KC listeners. Unlimited digital access to the Kansas City Stars award-winning sports coverage. Sign up now for one year of Sports Pass for access to all the sports news, features, and columns we have to offer. And it's only $30. That's a 40% savings off our regular rate. For your convenience, your subscription will automatically renew after the initial term at $50 unless you tell us to cancel. A lot of subscription services won't tell you that. They'll just sneak it on there. We just told you. Your subscription helps support the sports coverage of KansasCity.com and the Kansas City Star. Please visit KansasCity.com slash offer to get this special offer. And as always, thanks for listening. Jesse Newell, who covers... The Jayhawks for the Kansas City Star and the Wichita Eagle. We always say that about Kellis Robinette, who covers Kansas State for the Eagle and the Star. But you do the same thing, Jesse. The the McClatchy Kansas City, uh, the McClatchy Kansas Jayhawks beat writer. It's good to see you again. It's great to have you in the studio. Yes, one of the rare studio appearances, face to face, for Jesse Newell. Uh, so, so uh, it's on the occasion of Kansas. 12 to 7 loss to Coastal Carolina that we chat and I guess what I want to know Jesse is does is this a how big of a setback for the program is a loss like this we I was thinking that you know with Les Miles he has he had built up a lot of goodwill over the 10 months you know since he was hired until through the first week even though it was an escape act to beat Indiana State something of an escape act, um, left with good feelings. And I thought that maybe they, they had made, made enough mistakes in that Indiana State game that they could correct them and, and apply them to Coastal Carolina. Did not happen. And so what's the what's the level of disappointment, and is this a setback for KU? I think you put it well, Blair. I, I think KU is in a, in a unique circumstance with its football team, which is – they are going to be favored in two games every season, <laughs> you know, basically, and especially for this season, Indiana State at home goes to Carolina at home. And I don't mean to put off the other games or say they're not important or that they don't matter, but the fact of the matter is if KU plays its B game against Oklahoma, it loses. If it plays its B game against Texas, it loses. If it plays its B game against Indiana State and the Coastal Carolina, 
it wins both of those games. And we know that you're judged based off of your final record. And for Kansas, you only get so many games where you're going to be projected as a favorite and you have an opportunity to make the market that you talked about, Blair, which is to continue these good vibes that came with Les Miles because he has done good things in recruiting. He has gotten guys to sign up for the program uh, to be a part of a, a long-term rebuild. And to lose this game, to kind of have doubt creep in and to not take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you, it can be a major blow. Now, Kansas has 10 weeks and um, with all of those, you know, maybe they've got a 25% chance to beat West Virginia and a 15% chance to beat K-State. And you add all those up and maybe you can get one more victory for them somewhere at some point in the season, even if you can't pick out that specific game. But as you mentioned, I think the biggest thing was they had built up so many good vibes in the offseason. This potentially could bring that somewhat to a halt where maybe recruits out there would be like, hey, dude, is this what I want to sign up for? Or opposing coaches that want some of KU's players say, now, wait a minute, you want to be a receiver for Kansas, and they're not even putting two receivers on the field most of the time? So there's a lot of kind of negatives that can come of this from a big-picture perspective that goes even further into uh, that that is just basic the basic fact that KU started to build up a little bit of attendance and now lost a very important football game. I think you make a good point in that there are, a, there are some perception games on the KU schedule, and the, the two opponents that in which they'll be favored, those are perception games. Those are the those are the opponents that allow Kansas to, you know, we, we talk about this in, with, with a lot of college football teams, just take care of business this week. Take care. If you're a big favorite, you're taking care of business. Well, Kansas doesn't get many of those, right? So when they do have the opportunity to take care of business, you got to take care of business. Yeah, and I think the Vegas line here can really help us out because I've heard some people basically say, well, what do you expect from Les Miles? He didn't have much talent coming in, all that sort of stuff. The bottom line is, with all that being said, you're facing Coastal Carolina and you're a seven-point favorite at home. So even knowing all that, the standard there is that, like you talked about, you come out, you play a good game, you have a good game plan, you are prepared enough to defeat a team that, in all honesty, is further behind than you are, especially when you're playing them at home. And Coastal Carolina came in, they had lost their last five games. They're a team that had never beaten a Power 5 program, whether at home or on the road. I mean, this is not, you know, the, the late 80s 49ers walking into Booth Memorial Stadium. This is a team in the Sun Belt that if you perform well enough, you should be able to beat. So, um, like I said, I mean, the standards at Kansas are so low already. I mean, it's it's not like people are going to be like, bowl game or bust for the Jayhawks. If KU would have won its first two games and lost its last 10, uh, some people would have been disappointed. But it's, it's very difficult at the end of the year to say 2-10 and 10 and be like, well, that was, that was a really lost season. If KU could have won the first two and then snuck out another win somewhere and had three wins, I think a lot of fans would have been very happy with that, encouraged going into next season. But and this is just such a big opportunity, and, and I've said it all along. If Kansas could pick two games or two weeks to play its best football, it should be week one and week two because then you just guarantee yourself two wins and from the rest on you're just kind of getting gravy and, and everything is cherry on top of the cake but uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is KU doesn't ever seem to do this they haven't won they haven't gone to 2-0 since 2011 and that continues this year because they could not take care of business against a team that they probably should have beat maybe most discouraging about that outcome was just the what appeared to be disorganization on the offensive side at the most critical juncture of the game for Kansas to have to call timeouts on you know twice uh, on the same play to get a to get in the play that it wants uh, and and then ran the play that it did 
I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that actually, did that occur after the missed field goal? Or I'm trying to think, Kansas got a break with a short missed field goal by Coastal Carolina mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. Anyway, it came down to a fourth and, was it fourth and three? Fourth and four, yes. From, from the, about the 17, somewhere in the red zone. Yes. And uh, and you, you actually could have kicked a field goal there, I guess, and had enough time to you know have another possession for a field goal. But... Kansas doesn't have a reliable field goal kicker, yes. so maybe the fourth and three was a you had to go for it. Going for it's fine, yes. It, and but to, to for, for that to unfold the way that it did, it was kind of a head shaking moment. I think a lot of people coming into this season thought Les Miles has been here before. Certain things are going to go away, and I know a lot of the frustration with David Beatty. Right or wrong, I mean, listen, Kansas still won three games last year. I know we mentioned this in the last podcast. KU won three games last year, which is the most it's won in a decade. Against all FBS opponents. And lost the opening game to, to, an Nichols, to Nichols. Right. So, like, hypothetically could have, you know, very close to winning four. That game was in overtime. So I think a lot of fans, they can say, hey, we, we can take being out-talented. We can take having things not go their way all the time, but... You know, you remember David Beatty had all the fourth down issues where they would call timeout and then quick kick or call timeout and call another timeout and then or there'd be a procedure penalty after a timeout. And and those sorts of things drive you crazy where it's just like the team is not prepared that, you know, this this kind of it had the appearance of a, a, a team that was coached by someone who hadn't coached at the high major level before. So for Kansas to have Les Miles come in here and have these same sorts of things happen for a coach who has won 72 percent of his games, who was a major level coach, has coached in BCS you know, national title games, things like that. Um, uh, or, again, you know, at least taking his team to a national title. It's, right. I, I think that's the frustrating part uh, for a lot of fans is that they expected a lot of these things to go away. But, yeah, I wrote a story about the miscommunications, um, the offense not getting the right signals. Sometimes the coach is not sending in the right signals. Um, you know, the timeout, to me, the biggest sin of that play where – so KU gets out there, calls timeout fourth and four. Fine, get your right play. So they get the right play out there. Coastal Carolina calls timeout. Okay, we saw what you were doing. We want to get a better defense for that. KU comes out with the same play it had before. Well, Coastal Carolina called timeout to change his defense. I mean, of course you need to come up with something else. So they come out there, oh my gosh, Coastal Carolina is ready for this play. And so KU calls another timeout. Again, just the lack of sort of smoothness on game day, which I thought, I think KU fans, most of them thought that that was going to be a thing of the past. Those things have repeated themselves, and if I'm being completely honest, a major, major issue right now. We'll see if it gets fixed against Boston College and moving forward. Um, it's just the offense is very, 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 very vanilla. And it's, 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 it's old school, less miles offense. And maybe if you're at LSU and you have the best offensive linemen in the country and the best running backs in the country, maybe it can work. But uh, if you're Kansas and you have unblocked guys coming on run blitzes and you can't check yourself out of that and get into a pass play call, you're going to lose yardage, and that's what we saw from Kansas down the stretch in that game. Stands in contrast with the LSU offense that I saw Saturday night against Texas. And not to mention Leonard Fournette tweeting out last week, watching the LSU offense, saying, I wonder how many yards I would have had with this offense. So uh, that's also some sort of thing you probably don't want to see if you're a Kansas fan. All right, so what do we what do we to think of Carter Stanley? Well, fifth year, fifth year senior, uh, but with his, you know, with, with a new coach and a new system, um, and, and got listen. All give him all the credit in the world for the the game winning drive the previous week against Indiana State. But I know he he certainly shouldered a lot of the blame after the game. It's so difficult to me because it almost reminds me of some of the Royals teams of the past, where you're blaming a certain 
You remember Eduardo Velasquez? Sure. Do you sure. remember him? Yeah, yeah. He, for those people that don't know, Royals were just in a terrible shape, terrible part of their history, and they called up Eduardo Velasquez from AA, a guy who had horrible numbers, and he comes into Yankee Stadium and just— His Major League debut. Major League debut, Yankee, yeah. and just gets blitzed, absolutely blitzed. And I just kind of remember, he's become kind of like this folk hero of how bad it was for the Royals. But it's almost like, you know, you're criticizing the Royals, but is it Eduardo Velasquez's fault? Like, he probably knew he wasn't ready for the majors. He probably knew that he shouldn't be pitching at Yankee Stadium the next day. But what do you want Eduardo Velasquez to do? And you talked about it, Blair. Every step of the way, Carter Stanley has taken blame, saying he needs to get in better positions for the offense, needs to put the offense in better positions, needs to communicate better. He said this week he's gone in early, stayed late, trying to communicate all these things. Um, and he is who he is. Like, there's a reason that KU got him late in the process and only UConn is available. I mean, he doesn't have the best arm strength, and I don't think anybody by now really questions that. And he has turned it over. He's made some bad decisions, and KU has five giveaways in the first two games. They had 11 all of last year. Having said that, I honestly don't think he's getting much help. And when we talked to him about certain plays uh, in the game where other teams are bringing run blitzes and KU just continues to run the ball up the middle, he's said to us, and he's being honest, is that he doesn't have a way to get them out of it. He, he's not allowed to audible. He's not allowed to get them in a, in a play that will be more successful. So, uh, and, and not to mention the fact that, trust me, if Thomas McVitie was who they thought he was coming in, he would be the starting quarterback right now because obviously Carter Stanley thing is it's not working out great for Kansas and yet they're not going to Thomas. They're sticking with Carter. So I feel some sympathy for Carter Stanley in this because I think he's in a difficult situation. I think he's in a very basic offense. I think he's trying to do the right thing and take responsibility and be the leader that he's supposed to be. And I think as a quarterback, he's not being utilized to the best of his capabilities and what he can do. Uh, and yet, um, he's still going out there, and he's still taking the football, and he's still uh, trying to be the face of the program and trying to keep the team together when obviously it could be separated out here, and that could happen very soon. So um, it's difficult. Like Again, personally, I like Carter Stanley. He's a very, very nice kid. Um, he is a person who will take a responsibility. He will give you good answers. He will be detailed about it. He will not shun his responsibility. Um, after the Coastal Carolina game, he came out to the locker room and or came out of the locker room and was almost in tears with us because he yeah. felt so bad. Um, and so uh, that doesn't mean that he has performed great. It doesn't mean he's been a good quarterback for Kansas. That's and I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's sort of difficult at this point to kind of parse out what is all his responsibility and what is not. And like one of his interceptions, the receivers in the wrong spot, and that's because there's a miscommunication. And that's because of the whole offense not being good. So a lot of things have been bad on his part, and a lot of things have been bad on the offense's part. A lot of things have been bad on the coach's part. So it's difficult for me to throw too much blame on Carter Stanley. It seems like he's a person, kind of like Eduardo, that's been put in a tough situation and is, is trying his best to, to make the way out of it. What do, what do Kansas fans need to see Friday night at Boston College and what is you know, what can only be described now as a potential mismatch? Yeah, that, that spread now is 21 and a half points. Uh, it's going to be a Friday night game, and Boston College is rolled its first two opponents. Including, uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry, not rolled. Rolled Richmond last week and then beat Virginia, Virginia Tech. Tech. And then the first week, right. uh, another former KU quarterback, Ryan Willis, in the opener. And so um, that's kind of an interesting side note. But uh, run-heavy team, Boston College. And to be completely honest, for Kansas, uh, because they're not going to be favorites in this game, this is the potential where maybe being run-heavy and burning some clock and limiting possessions, this and the rest of the other nine games of the season could benefit KU. So... 
the last game, the Jayhawks uh, gave away two turnovers and got none back. So hey, there's an easy start. Which was a you know a mark of last year's team. Yeah, they, they and, were... and and studies would show us that's more a fluky thing than anything. But right. Kansas deserves credit again. You have to catch the football when it's thrown to you. They did. You have to recover the fumble when it is. But um, that was not a thing I probably thought they could continue over this year. But Peyton Bender, for all the people that did not like him, that was one thing he did very well, is he took care of the football. KU punted a lot, but they punted a lot because they didn't turn it over a lot. You know what I mean? So he was very ball secure with KU's offense, and KU did not hurt itself. So I I think it starts there. And then it starts with communication issues and not having these breakdowns that just cause these huge game-changing plays for Kansas. And, um, again, you don't want to overreact to one week. I I don't think in five days' time you can reinvent your offense. You can redo a lot of things. Maybe you can tweak here or there or put in certain parts of the playbook you haven't yet. But for Kansas fans, I think you're looking just for a better product, less miscommunication. You maybe grab a couple turnovers. You play more sound yourself. And all of a sudden, you look up in the fourth quarter, and you're down seven. You got yourself a shot, and you have a low-possession game. Maybe Puka breaks a run, and something crazy happens. But as we know in college football, it's a, it's a week-to-week thing, and you don't want to overreact to one week. So Kansas is, is likely not as bad as it showed against Coastal Carolina, but it sure has to be a whole lot better if it wants to win another game the rest of this season. All right, good stuff, Jesse. Thanks for stopping by, and we will talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Blair. Alex Schiffer covers Missouri for the Kansas City Star, and he's with us now. Alex, the, the Tigers, after that terribly disappointing opener rebounded beat, beat a West Virginia team from the Big 12 pretty pretty handily bottom line that game for us uh I think we all expected Missouri to win but if it had been closer than that there probably would have been some concern but maybe the the, the concerns after the the Wyoming game were alleviated just a little bit yeah, you know, I, I thought Kelly. I thought it was a little bit of a tale of two halves. Missouri went up 31 nothing at halftime against West Virginia, only scored a touchdown the rest of the game and kind of took their foot off the gas. But I, uh, I thought the story, and I just had a story drop on this on the Kansas City Star website, was Kelly Bryant in the second quarter. I mean, Missouri had three touchdowns thanks to him, and they the, a lot of those were generated off of turnovers. Missouri had three interceptions against uh, – West Virginia. They could have had a lot more with the way Austin Kendall's passes were getting tipped and just kind of dying in the air. I thought he was phenomenal at avoiding tackles. I mean, he he kept a lot of plays alive for Missouri. He found guys downfield, and uh, the story kind of just talks about how they've had to adjust to that under Kelly Bryant. You know, Drew Locke preferred to stay in the pocket. He wasn't really a guy that you saw do a uh, Patrick Mahomes with the pocket collapse and he does something ridiculous. Drew's arm strength was kind of the way the offense was tailored. I, I thought he really showed out in the second quarter and you know, the defense had three interceptions, one return for a pick six. Nick Bolton had a strong game after struggling at Wyoming. So no, I, I thought that this was very encouraging. And, you know, a side note, I mean, I, I thought Dana Holgerson, who I thought was kind of crazy for going from the big 12 to Houston and the American, I mean, he looked like he got out of town just in time. That West Virginia team was not good in any category, really. Yeah, there's there's a talent dip uh, at West Virginia right now, for sure. They had a lot of transfers after last season, players that were eligible to come back but didn't, decided not to come back to West Virginia. So there are going to be some growing pains for the Mountaineers, who will see Kansas and Kansas State later this season. Um, so the, the Kelly Bryant game, he did some things against West Virginia that we we didn't see him do against Wyoming that he might might should have you know in terms of keeping plays alive with his scrambling ability. You think we're gonna we're gonna see more of this from him this year? 
Yeah, I definitely think so, especially as the rest of the offense gets more used to it as the season goes on. I was watching, I spent my morning making gifts for the story, so I was watching a lot of West Virginia and Wyoming tape. A lot of his stuff against Wyoming was really just designed runs. There was a couple of times the pocket collapsed and he tried to do something with it. His first touchdown at Wyoming to Jonathan Nance kind of was that way, but he really just kind of shifted against the tackle and, and found him for four yards. No, I, I thought, you know, the a couple of plays that were really eye-popping, the 19-yard completion he had, he had to, or 18 yards to Daniel Parker, he had two or three guys come right at him. He They tried to wrap him up. He shook him off, gained his composure, and fired it right downfield. There was right at the end of the first half the sack with quotation marks that was called for forward progress. Uh, no part of his body hit the ground. I thought that was a questionable call on the ref's part, actually, just because no part of him was down. And that was uh, West Virginia blitz seven. They had three guys get through, and, and he still – they couldn't take him down. So, no, I think I think Missouri fans knew that they were getting a, a dual-threat guy in him. But, you know, it's not that just he avoids the tackle, but he still finds a way to do something with it afterwards. So it's not like he's just throwing it away and there's no one open. So, no, I think as the rest of the offense continues to get used to the fact that, all right, it, it looks like he's going to go down, but I should still try and stay open and extend my route or uh, or move around a little more – I think that it's going to continue to be be more of a thing. Well, and so you know, you can pick out anybody really uh, from game one to game two and say that you know, they got better, and uh, you know the, the, that is reflected in the outcome and the score. But one player I wanted you to chat about is Trey Williams, and you wrote about him earlier this week. So let's let's focus on him and where do you see his progress right now. Yeah, I think he's an interesting deal just because it was about a month ago that he got reinstated, maybe a little more than that, after being away from the team for nine months. No one really knew, you know, talking to Barry Odom, Ryan Walters, Brick Haley, uh, no one really wanted to say what they were going to get out of him because he'd been away for so long. Conditioning was an issue. You know, guys could have jumped him on the line. And two games in, he's already a starter again. And, I mean, that's a position that they need something out of. The defensive line as a whole looked a lot better game one to game two. You know, he was in the mix for a number of sacks. He had a quarterback hurry, and, and there was a couple of plays he was really in on. And it, it seems like that Brick Haley, Missouri's defensive line coach, is, is comfortable saying that he is in game shape, but maybe not necessarily in season shape still. And and Missouri's missing Trajan Jeffcoat still with the sprained elbow. They think he'll be able to go against South Carolina. Akil Byers could always move back outside. So I, I think Trey's an interesting case because he's back in the mix now. But if they struggle again, that can easily be rotated around or kind of flipped over to see who else they can get something out of. Right. So and you mentioned the you, and you mentioned the turnovers. I want to stay on the defense here. Did I read this right? Um, three sacks and in, in thirteen total tackles for loss against the Mountaineers. Yes, that would, the last time they had that many, Missouri had 15 tackles for loss in Barry Odom's lone season as offensive coordinator in 2015. Okay, well, before we uh, uh, get all positive on the Tigers, I, 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 I was struck by the penalties. Uh, 10 for 100 yards, that's got to be something that the Tigers have to clean up when SEC play starts. Yeah, they, and they had some killer penalties as well in Wyoming. And, you know, Barry Odom said after Wyoming that some of those were on the coaching staff. They they tried to change a formation based on a look, and, and it just didn't work out. And, and by the time they got the message across, the ball was already about to be snapped, and they screwed up on that part. But, no, they, they've had enough. And they've, it's not that like you can just kind of point to one thing like a false start or, you know, hands to the face. or anything. They've kind of checked all the different boxes as to what they've had penalties on. So 
Lucha's on a fraction, offsides. Um, there might have been a, uh, a face mask in there somewhere. Maybe the, the silver lining with this is that there hasn't been a targeting call yet because Missouri's gotten a couple of those in bad times when it, it takes one of the best players off the field. So, yeah, they, they, it's the second straight week they've had some alarming penalties, and uh, they got to get that figured out. Well, it seems like a good weekend to clean up some of the messes with uh, southeastern Missouri coming into Columbia, SEMO, a FCS program that's coming off a loss. They lost uh, by three touchdowns to Montana State last week. We're not going to spend much time talking about this game. This is a uh, an opponent that Missouri should roll. It's a it's a money game for SEMO. Where they get about a half million or so, four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars for coming in, uh, which is kind of standard for you know for, for this type of game. And, and Missouri, one thing I do like is that Missouri for the second straight year is keeping the opponent and the money in the state of Missouri. Uh, it was Missouri State last year. Of course, that was a crazy game in the opener, but um, uh, but now it's SEMO this season. And, uh, and I like the idea of playing opponents that are in, in your state and keeping that guaranteed money in there. What, does, what, what should we know about SEMO? And, uh, and, and, and obviously, this, this is a game where the, the reserve should get plenty of playing time in the second half. Yeah, exact dollar figure. Missouri's paying SEMO was 425000 So you were pretty close. Uh, they were 9-4 and four last year. They went to the FCS playoffs and, uh, and got knocked out by— um, I think Weber by- State, I think. Yes, which is a pretty good FCS team, and uh, and yeah, they. This is a coaching staff Barry Odom is very familiar with. It seems like there there's a lot of uh, friendship between Barry and um, I, I'm going to screw up the guy's last name. It's like Tom Matukowitz, I think it is the the Simo head coach. They visited each other when they were at uh, when Barry was at Memphis, with Simo being kind of close to Memphis. And uh, and both coaching staffs have kind of visited with each other in the offseason. So there, there is good relations. I think Barry Odom kind of looks at this as even though it's a game Missouri should win, it's it might help attendance a little bit that, you know, these are a lot of guys from in-state that were good enough to go D1 but not good enough to go D1 in Missouri. Uh, and maybe that should account for some more seats that maybe you wouldn't go to for a blowout. And, yeah, I mean, they, they've had two games where they've, they've kind of either been – blown out or doing the blown out you know the montana state game it looked like going back and checking on that it, it was a close game and then it looks like in the third quarter montana state just turned it up and and simo could just kind of couldn't hang you know they, they i think they're 12 or 13th in the fcs top 25 rankings i don't know how much stock to put in that just because it's not a north dakota state or a jmu as we've talked about but it's not like there are nobody in fcs either so i uh i, I think the local ties are good for missouri for attendance purposes and uh, and I, I think Barry's not going to try to run up the score intentionally, per se, on a team that he has friends on the coaching staff. And last time Missouri played SEMO was season opener 2015. That was I was called it the Drew Lock hype train game because that's where you had the 78-yard touchdown to Tyler Hunt. You were I could have thrown that touchdown given how wide open he was. But uh, that was the game. I remember everyone wrote about Drew Lock after that game. So. Uh, been a little bit since Missouri played the Red Hawks. Okay, so maybe a little bit more competitive than a maybe a typical FCS versus FBS, especially in SEC. But I, I do know this: Simo uh, has a player, Zach Hall, who's a linebacker, who was the uh, either the FCS linebacker of the year or, or defensive player of the year last year. But he's a he's a guy to keep an eye on, Zach Hall for for Southeast Missouri. Let's take a really quick look ahead, though. Let's 
let's turn the turn the page and look at the the, the battle for Columbia uh, the following week when South Carolina visits Missouri. How about a quick uh, thought on on the importance of that game and and uh, and and now especially in in light of the loss to Wyoming, I think it kind of raises the importance of games that appeared to me anyway in the preseason to be somewhat of jump ball type games. Missouri can't lose any of those if it wants to have the uh, the season that it expects. Yeah, you know, I think it's been a very interesting week in uh, in Missouri's opponents with Missouri's opponents because South Carolina lost Jake Bentley for the season, which to me creates a really interesting dynamic now with them. You know, Jake Bentley could come back for a year, could test the NFL draft waters. He could grad transfer, but his dad's on the coaching staff there, and that would make for an interesting conversation. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I mean, South Carolina has struggled early. I think Missouri's games historically, save for the one in 2017, which kind of turned into a blowout, they've all been pretty good. I mean, you know, the, the game in 2013 was college game. They should have been there. Ended, obviously, with the missed field going overtime. The 2014 game was just kind of a grinded-out game. 15 was a pretty good game. Drew Locke's first start. And then last season was just a weird game with the, the weather delays and, and all that. But, no, I, I think – you know, between South Carolina and Kentucky losing their quarterback Terry Wilson of the season for injury, I, I think that both of those games kind of went from games Missouri, you, you'd probably pick them to win, but now I don't know how you don't pick them to win. I mean, you know, the backup quarterback has burned Missouri a number of times. I mean, South Carolina last year that Bentley couldn't play, and we all know what happened there. But, you know, I, I think when a team loses a quarterback a few games into the season, and I, I can't speak as well to Kentucky and South Carolina just as to how different those guys are and how much they have to tweak their offense for those guys. But when you lose a guy that's played that many snaps and, and has that kind of experience, to me, I mean, Kelly Bryant being the fifth-year senior and his, what his resume is, I, I just look at those games as games that have kind of in the last week gone from, yeah, I'd pick Missouri, to now they kind of go into the Wyoming category of how do you not win that given what those teams have just been through now. Okay, well, we look forward to talking to you about the Gamecocks next week, and that's a big one, and that'll be a lot of fun in in Columbia, Missouri, for, for that game. Alex, thanks for talking to us, and we'll chat with you again next week. Sounds good, Blair. Take care. Kellis Robinette, who covers Kansas State for the Kansas City Star and Wichita Eagle, joins us, and he's got a big game this weekend as the Wildcats visit Mississippi State in Starkville, going to play an SEC team, a team that, that beat them pretty good last year in, in Manhattan. And, Kellis, it occurred to me, and I know it occurred to you because you wrote about it this week, that, um, that Chris Kleiman doesn't find himself in this position very often. That is something of an underdog in, as, as a head coach. I mean, when he was in North Dakota State. You know, he was just rolling over folks and winning, you know, four national championships in five years. But now he's 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 an underdog going into Saturday's game. There, he is not expected to win his first two games at Kansas State. He was in that position. He is not in that position this week, is he? No, he's gone from uh, a twenty-three point favorite to a twenty-five point favorite. It's now a seven and a half point underdog. So a big switch for him. I went back and looked. I can't say for absolute certainty when the last time he was an underdog, but the two games I circled were either uh, two or three years ago in the FCS championship game. He played James Madison when North Dakota State was the two seed, and James Madison was the one seed. So it's possible. 
they entered that game as a very small underdog. And the only other game I could say for sure they were not favored to win was when they beat Iowa when he was at North Dakota State. They had to have been an underdog in that game, but they won in, went in and won 23-21. So it doesn't happen very often. His teams were normally picked to win the entire championship in FCS when he was at North Dakota State. Um, so this will be a, a different different kind of thing for him. I think he's on a 23-game winning streak right now overall. That's amazing. I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, they were undefeated last year and, and won the championship the year before that, right, at North Dakota State. They did, they did, and he's off to a two and zero start here. So, so he doesn't uh, know what, he doesn't know what it's like to to face the media, uh, at least the, the the Kansas State media, in uh, to to describe and and uh, chat about a loss. That uh, maybe that won't maybe that won't happen. For that not to happen, what what's going what's going to be important for Kansas State uh, at Mississippi State this week? What have you seen from the Wildcats in the first two weeks that you think can translate well into an effort this weekend? Well, you got to love their third down conversion rate. I mean, they've been unbelievable at avoiding punts. They didn't have a single one in game one, and they didn't bring Devin Angtel on the field until the game was well in hand in game two when their walk-ons were on the field. So they've done a great job of picking up yardage on first and second down and getting into that third and manageable and then picking it up. And that's turned out a lot of uh, possession time for them, and it, it's helped everything. It's worn down the opposing team. It's rested their defense. I don't know that they can stay on the field for 40 minutes in this game like they have in the first two, but if they can uh, win the time of possession and have it at about 35, I think that'll really help them because the longer they're on the field, the less time that Kylan Hill and that offense are on the field. And I think as long as they can move the chains and get above 21 points and slow down Kylan Hill as best they can, I think they'll have a shot here. I agree. I know on Wednesday when we talked, I mentioned that uh, this game could be the Isaiah, Isaiah Zuber Bowl, and, and it really could be, right? I mean, he, of all the teams for Kansas State's leading receiver from last season to transfer to, he ends up in Starkville. And it got me thinking, you know, in the NFL, uh, on, on cut day, uh, for when, the, when the rosters go from 90 to 53, sometimes some of those cut players end up on the opponent, uh, the opening game opponent uh, roster. That happened this year with Chase Linton, the Chiefs quarterback, was picked up by, by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And part of that is basically to quiz him and to, you know, to, to get a lot of intel from him. I don't think that was the case with Isaiah Zuber, but he certainly is in a position to, to help scout uh, you know, at least the players, if not the, the, the system, uh, because there's a new coach at Kansas State. Right. He is. I, I think his presence there gives him a little bit of an advantage just because he, like you said, he can help out with personnel. And so many of Kansas State's wide receivers are, are unproven, um, really, other than Dalton Schoen. There's not a whole lot of tape on other guys like Malik Knowles and Joaquin Gill and Sebastian Taylor and Landry Weber. So if you wanted to find somebody who could tell you how to defend those players and what they can do, Isaiah Zuber would be a great uh, person to chat with about it because he's been around, around him for a long time. But it's it's the new reality in college football. It's kind of crazy. Kansas State will see Zuber this week. They'll see Alex Delton later this year against TCU. He may or not be starting at that point. But uh, with all the transfers and the relaxed rules there, I think you're going to see this more and more. I don't know, like you said, if there will be teams just picking off players just for their knowledge in those games. But Kansas State kind of is fortunate this, this time around because – they did switch coaching staff, so it's not like Isaiah Zuber can be over there and just pointing out the signals and saying they're running this, this play, they're running that, that play. It won't be that kind of an, kind of an advantage, but it uh, it will make things interesting, no doubt. 
All right, so I, I think you felt pretty confident in the Wildcats in their first two games. What would what do you th- how do you think this one's going to unfold? What uh, give me a final score? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I haven't totally made up my mind, so don't. Uh, okay. Well, you only got a few <laughs> hours before you got to turn in the final story here for. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking I'll probably go with Mississippi State, something like 24-21, just because it is at home. They'll have the cowbells there. Um, their uh, defense. The, uh, their, the their defense. Their, their defense is just better than anything Kansas State has, has seen this far. They lead the country in consecutive games in which they've allowed 30 points or less. Nobody scored more than 28 against them going back more than a season and a half. So as good as Kansas State's offense has looked, I just don't know if I trust them to go on the road and break that and score the 30 points it's going to take to win. But I, I'm I'm thinking about it. They've looked so good the first two weeks. I might change my mind and pick them to win narrowly. But r- right now, I'm thinking probably Mississippi State close just because of home field advantage. And I think they've got a little bit more stability in, in what they do because they've got a second-year coach instead of a first-year coach. Okay. Sounds good, Callis. It's on ESPN on 11 o'clock, right? Central kick, uh, Central time kick? Yep. 11 a.m. right after college game day. It uh, should be a good morning. Which is going to be in Ames, Iowa, by the way. How crazy is that for Iowa, Iowa State? They could easily have been at Starkville for, for K-State, Mississippi State. I think it's certainly one of the marquee games in the country this weekend. All right, Callis, thanks for stopping by, and we'll talk to you again next week. All right, sounds good, Blair. Links to our Chiefs coverage can be found in the show notes and the Red Zone Extra app. And check out our college coverage on KansasCity.com and in the print editions of The Star. Thanks to Kathy Liu and Leah Pacera for producing today's show. And happy International Programmers Day to Leah. Catch us on the Kansas City Star's YouTube channel. And remember, we're not the Roger Miller song. Rate and review Sportsbeat KC on Apple Podcasts and say nice things. It helps. We'll be back after the Chiefs game in Oakland on Sunday.